If you recall, last week uh, we began looking at the importance of the pastor's character. We talked about the importance of godliness and holiness uh, in leadership positions, specifically in our context in Titus and in the, the leadership of the church. We saw just how important it is that men be holy, that they be godly. However, what we said briefly last week is going to be the focus of our text this week, which is that while character matters and godliness matters, gifting is not irrelevant, right? Uh, There's still a particular gifting, there's still a particular skill set that God has to equip men to do, to have, in order to be effective pastors in the ministry of Jesus' church. And so that's what we are going to see. Last week was the pastor's character, and this week we're going to look at the pastor's gifting. If you would please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, and we are going to be reading verses 9 through 16, and then examining their content. Titus chapter 1, verses 9 through 16. This is in our Pastoral Epistles sermon series, which includes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These are in your New Testaments. If you hit Hebrews or 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. It is just before Philemon, just before the book of Hebrews. Titus chapter 1. Uh, And before we read verse 9, remember, Paul just gave this big list of pastoral qualifications. That's what we call that list um, that we looked at last week. And verse 9 is sort of part of that list, but because of its connection to verse 10 and 16, I wanted to separate it for our sermon today. Uh, But you see, we're, we're kind of jumping into the middle of something, which is why that verse might seem kind of awkward to start here, but I think we will pick it up. Uh, verses 5 through 8, Paul has began to tell us about what kind of qualities and, 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 and giftings a pastor must have, and he continues in verse 9 saying this, that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled." They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So a little bit of reminder of our context here is important. Uh, Paul is writing to Titus, and Titus was left on the island of Crete in order to, uh, as Paul says in verse 5, to sort of put into order what Paul left there. So Paul went and did missionary work in Crete, planted some churches, and they need structure. They need help. And so Titus's job is to appoint elders and pastors over these churches, and then their leadership will help uh, get these churches going and keep them on their feet and strengthening them. And so Paul here, in the middle of sort of reminding us of, of the the cultural context that Titus has called to be a pastor in. And let me just tell you, it's worse than Roswell. We can be very grateful 
It's worse than Roswell. I think we, um, we have to be very careful to not, this is not my sermon notes, by the way, so you're getting this for free. Uh, we have to be very careful uh, to, sometimes I think we read the Bible with a very victimized lens, wherein it's really easy for us to see, like, man, it's so bad here, and, and, and our culture is just so bad. People have no idea how hard it is to minister in the 21st century, and the world is just so bad. I don't think that anything we've seen, you know, we're, we're seeing Christianity in America, certainly a post-Christian culture. We are seeing the rise of secularism. Uh, Christianity is tough here. It's tough around the world. But I think very few modern contexts compare to the first century. Very few compare, if any compared to the difficulties of first century church living. And so Titus is being called to establish pastors and to help pastor in a very difficult area, in a very difficult culture, a culture that's uh, not helpful or, or uh, favorable to Christian churches. And so because of that, it's important that a pastor have certain giftings, certain passions. And we're going to look at three of those today that I think the text implicitly gives to us. There's three giftings, if you will, three qualifications or skills that a pastor must have to be successful in the ministry of God's church. And the first one is this, pastors must be theologians. Pastors must be theologians. A pastor cannot be someone who's just simply really good at leading people. He can't just have great personal skills. He can't be just a, a, a good orator, and he can't be a, a, just someone who just is talented in terms of CEO and marketing and, and, and those kinds of skills. A pastor must be someone who has a firm grasp of Christian theology. He must understand God's word. Look at verse 9. He, speaking of qualified pastors, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So the pastor must hold firm to Christian faith. He must understand it, hold firm to it, grasp it tightly. He is not someone that can waver back and forth in his theology. He has to be a theologian. In other words, ideally, you want your pastor to be an egghead. You want your pastor to be nerdy. You want him to have a love for reading and study and theology. You want your pastor to know Christian doctrine, to know Christian truth, to have what we call a liberal arts education, a, a, a wide horizon of Christian theology and how it applies to life. And he must hold firm to these things. Pastors need to lead the church theologically. And this is why you'll find, although I don't, I don't personally agree with this, I do understand the intent behind it. Many denominations will not ordain pastors unless they have a seminary degree. And, and, and the reason they do that is because they want to assure, they want to assure their church that this man that you are calling to help lead your church has a firm grasp of the Christian faith. And specifically, if you're being ordained, a firm grasp of, of how your denomination understands the Christian faith. And again, although I don't think that it should be an absolute requirement for pastors to get a seminary degree, I certainly agree that it is an absolute requirement that pastors have the kind of theological education that comes with a seminary degree. I just think there's other ways of obtaining it. But your pastor needs to be educated in the Christian faith. He needs to have a firm grasp of theology. So as we saw last week, character matters. Holiness matters. Pastors need to be godly, holy, mature men. But that is not enough. They need to be theologians. Uh, even, for example, you'll recall, even the disciples themselves, you know, so people who tend to be more anti-seminary will say stuff like, well, Peter didn't need a seminary degree. 
Well, John didn't go to seminary. Okay, yeah, that's technically true. But they did walk with Jesus and learn from him for three years. You could actually make the argument that they got the best seminary degree anyone's ever gotten. These were still men who were trained for three years. Well, it it wasn't what we call seminary, but the point is, is you want theological education. You want someone who holds firm to the truth. And and we we could qualify this the way the scripture does here. Pastors must be theologians, but let's qualify it. They must be biblical theologians. They must have a, a, a firm grasp of Scripture, what Scripture teaches. Now, why do I say that? Because look at how Paul says it. He says again in verse 9 that the pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why do I get Scripture from that? Well, let's recall our context. Remember, uh, Titus was living in a day of what we call progressive revelation. Uh, God was still revealing to his churches. God had not finished the revelation process. And so because of that, the New Testament was currently in production, right? Titus didn't have a, a New Testament, so to speak, attached to his Old Testament. Now, he probably would have had some letters. He at least had Titus, right? What we call Titus. He at least had this. Um, But Titus was living in a day and age where while the New Testament was being inscripturated and copied and transmitted, Christian orthodoxy was in many ways an oral religion. Now, I'm currently reading a book right now in second century. We have to be very careful with this. Even in the first century, Christianity was, was far and above any other religion of the day, a textual religion. They still had the Old Testament they were teaching from. They were still teaching from the New Testament letters that they were giving. So I'm not saying Christianity was ever a completely oral tradition. Christianity has always been a text-based tradition, but during this time, while part of the texts are still being written, there was certainly an oral element to the Christian faith. That's why the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Thessalonians, he tells them to hold fast to the words that I have given you, whether by letter or by oral instruction. In other words, what Titus and Timothy, as they received these letters, what they were supposed to know is that their authorities in Christian doctrine were the apostles themselves. So anything that the apostles gave to them, it was their duty to maintain that and to teach that. So whether Paul spoke it to them orally or wrote it to them in a letter, whatever the apostles handed off to them, that was their Christian faith. Now, we live 2,000 years later. The apostles are long gone, and 2,000 years is plenty of time for people to distort what someone allegedly said. So this is why today we are not so much interested in an an oral tradition, just sort of blindly assuming that something the apostle Paul said in a sermon sometime has been orally preserved for us for 2,000 years, and no one has manipulated to change it or affected it. In the Protestant faith, we understand that the scriptures are the only objective testimony we have, the only sure testimony we have to what the apostles taught. So in order for a Christian minister to to hold and to practice, verse 9, how is it that he holds firm to the trustworthy word as it was taught? We'll just open up your New Testament and see what the apostles taught. So that's why you see what what, what we're emphasizing here in our day and age, the application of verse 9, is that your pastors be biblical theologians. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that the church is established on the testimony of the prophets and the apostles. Pastors need to know, well, what did the prophets say then? And what did the apostles say then? Pastors need to be theologians, and specifically, they need to be biblical theologians. 
And this is sort of the, the, the context. We'll get into this more in depth here in a minute. But as we obviously read, there's some false teaching coming into the church. Again, we'll get to that in a second. But as you can see, Paul describes that as being, um, for example, he, he says in, in, uh, in verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, especially those of the circumcision party. This was kind of a, a somewhat insulting way for Paul to refer to the Jews. And uh, he, he, later on, he says in verse 14, teaching, the pastor needs to teach people not to devote themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people, right? So overall, we have to understand the context here is that what's, what's the, the temptation in the culture right now is that people are in fact bringing oral tradition into the apostolic witness, the Jews are trying to say, we have a Jewish lineage, we have stories, we have rabbinical teachings, we have extra secondary uh, literature outside of the Old Testament. And in the first century, we had this kind of bizarre Jewish mix of Greco-Roman thought, Jewish tradition, and then Christianity trying to blend itself together. And so Paul is saying all of those Jewish myths, we see this in 1 Timothy where he describes them as genealogies and debates about the law. They're bringing in all of this secondary material, this outside of apostolic witness material, and they're trying to blend it and mix it into Christian religion. And Paul is trying to, to, to cut the, that out. He's trying to trim the fat, so to speak, and say your authority is not rabbinical tradition. Your authority is not Jewish legend. Your authority is us. You hold to what has been firmly delivered to you. That's the word you hold to. So pastors are to not be swayed to and fro by various ecumenical traditions and lineages and stories. And they want to be biblical theologians. What did the apostles say? What did the prophets say? That is utmost important to the pastor. Pastors are theologians. But then that brings us to our next point. There's a reason why your pastor needs to be a theologian. It's not sort of a, an end in and of itself, but there's a means to an end here. Pastors need to understand the faith, the Christian faith. They need to be skilled in understanding the truth of Scripture. But then there's two reasons, two related reasons, why we need pastors to do that. He says, back in verse 9 again, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine. So pastors, first and foremost, are theologians, but pastors are also teachers. Pastors are instructors. This is why if you compare the qualifications that Paul gives in Timothy to, from elders and deacons, if you compare those lists, the most glaring one that's not in the deacons is the gifting or the qualification able to teach, right? Elders, pastors, they need to be able to teach, Teaching is a gift, although it's still something that can be sharpened. It's still something that can be trained and practiced. But we see teaching as a gift, and pastors have to have it. They have to be able to communicate and teach people, churches, Christian theology. And that, that takes us back again to number one. If you don't know theology, you can't pass it on. So they have to know it, and they have to know it so that they can educate. And we see yet again Christianity is, is being, especially in the first century, but I would argue in many ways today it still is like this. Christianity was unique in that it was a very cerebral religion. It was an intellectual religion. It was a religion that was interested in truth and text and reading and debate and argumentation. And we see Paul here, he, he considers one of the duties of the local church. This is not the only purpose of the local church, but churches are supposed to be kind of like theological training centers, Schools where pastors and, and appointed men are delivering or teaching the Christian faith to people. They know their theology so that they can ins give instruction and in sound doctrine. 
Pastors are teachers. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the most famous dialogues in the New Testament that many, many people are familiar with is before Jesus ascends and, and leaves, he restores Peter after Peter, remember Peter denied Jesus three times and so Jesus has this very touching moment with Peter where he sort of subtly forgives and restores him and, and Jesus leaves Peter with, with a threefold command. He says, Peter, essentially I'm going to go so here's what you need to do, Peter. Feed my sheep. And he repeats it. Feed my sheep. And so, what we understand is, is Jesus' mentality is that one of Peter's primary duties as an apostle was to feed God's sheep, which is a metaphor for instructing them and teaching them. So, pastors are theologians, but pastors are also teachers. They're educators. Now, uh, the next part is, is very similar to teaching and ed- education, uh, it's really important to see this next one as, as sort of being the other side of the same coin, right? We've got this coin here, and, and on one side is teaching and instruction, but on the other side of that coin, the reason the pastor must be a theologian is not just so that he can give instruction and sound doctrine, but we finish verse 9, that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So number three, pastors must be apologists. Pastors are theologians, pastors are teachers, and pastors must be apologists. What do we mean by that? Uh, in the Christian faith, if, if you're, you know, didn't grow up in the Christian faith, you've probably never heard this term before because it's really not an English word. We, we sort of borrowed it from Greek. And the Greek word, apologia, uh, was a word for a defense, right? So lawyers are sort of like secular apologists, because lawyers, they go into a courtroom, what do they do? They, they argue and they debate and they try to establish proof. They make a case and they defend someone or they make a case against someone. They're sort of secular apologists, if you will. And so pastors here are called to be kind of lawyer-like in their vocation. They are to rebuke people who are saying and teaching things that the apostles never said or taught. And notice that, you know, it is important, and one of the most important ways that we know what's false is by knowing what's true. And that's certainly true, but notice Paul doesn't leave it there, though. Paul goes out of his way not to just simply say this, listen, as long as you just teach the truth, then even if people come in with falsehood, they know the truth, they're not going to be deceived. No, Paul still makes this distinction. You are to teach the truth and you are to refute that which is false. Pastors are like defense attorneys. They're like lawyers. They are what we call in Christianity apologists. They refute false doctrine. In other words, we need to understand that pastors are men who, can, who, are, who cannot be afraid of theological duels. And I say this and I emphasize this because I, I do think that this really kind of goes against the spirit of our age. I think that we sort of live in a culture where tolerance and peace is valued above everything, including truth itself. And pastors who are maybe abrasive or argumentative or polemical, constantly talking about, well, no, that's false church and that's false teaching, that's false religion, they really seem as, as bad guys. These, right, these negative Nancys, super picky. We, we just want everyone, why can't we just accept? Yeah, we've got some differences, but let's just, let's just accept. Or why do you have to spend so much time talking about all these false things in culture? Like, why can't we just focus on what's true? But no, pastors are supposed to refute anyone who would seek to contradict that firm word they are supposed to hold 
so tightly too. And we see that, that Paul is very serious about this because in verses 10 through really the rest of our preaching portion, through the rest of chapter 1, Paul talks about why this is so important, why sound doctrine, why the instruction of sound doctrine, and why refuting false teachers is so important. And he uses throughout that, he uses very firm, harsh language, right? Look at, again, at, let's begin in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. They must be silenced. The Greek word that's used there is actually the word that you would use to, to physically describe a muzzle. This is what you would use when you muzzled an animal's. He's saying you need to put a muzzle on those false teachers. Uh, an accurate translation, if we wanted to be real aggressive, could say something like this. The, the purpose of the pastor when people refute contradict is to shut their mouths. You need to shut their mouths. Not physically, right? We're obviously talking about in the realm of teaching and apologetics, refutation, not violence, not intimidation. But through argument, through the presentation of truth, pastors are called to shut the mouths of false teachers, he, he uses uh, more harsh language again in verse 13. We'll get to that quote in verse 12, but speaking of that quote, he says, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Right? Paul, again, he is really calling pastors to be probably more aggressive than many people in our culture want pastors to be. Now, I do, I do want to make an important um, caveat here. If you go back to uh, um, verse 11, Paul says they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So I think that there is a, a, a brief caveat here. Uh, I, I'm really emphasizing the aggressive, apologetic nature of pastors because I think it's emphasized in the text, but primarily because I think that that's really, uh, the, the spirit of our age is very much against that. But this can be abused, right? Uh, in other words, a pastor does not have license uh, to, to, to run with this principle and, and just be constantly uh, ripping people down and cutting people down for every tiny minor difference that they might have. And here's why I say that, because notice the, the nature of what Paul is calling his pastors to put to, to death here is in the ESV, it's, translating, it's translated as they are upsetting whole families, all right, the, 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 the Greek word there is, is, is turning things upside down, so to speak. So I think that pastors also need to have another skill set, another gift. Pastors need to be able to sort of have the discernment to understand there, there's a bit of a triage in terms of theological differences. Not all are as important or as devastating as others, right? Not every theological disagreement we might have turns families upside down or upsets whole families, um, you know, in, in the medical world, you have triage, right? Where you understand some injuries in a hospital, there are some things that are more serious than others. They require more immediate attention. And so in, in, in the triage system, I'm, I'm not from the medical world, so some, I'm sure many of you could probably explain this better than me. I think, but the general principle is if I go in with a broken wrist and then another man comes in five minutes after me with multiple gunshot wounds to the chest, I might not be getting attention as quickly as I might like. And I think there's a logic to that. And in the same way, pastors need to kind of have a, a a theological triage, that, that we can have disagreements in our church body that don't uh, disrupt the fabric of our local church. 
We can have disagreements in our church body that don't upset whole families and turn things on their heads. And pastors still need to give instruction there and they need to mediate those differences and try to educate. But I really think what Paul specifically has in mind here is a kind of theological threat that is truly changing the Christian faith into something it's not. This is upsetting whole families. Right? Families gathering at their homes say, I don't know what to believe anymore. They say this, they say this, and they're very different. But there are some levels of threat that don't require necessarily gentleness. They still require holiness. They still require loving our neighbor. But they require sharp rebuke. They require muzzling because they are so dangerous to the life of the church and to the church body as a whole. And so pastors need to be apologists. They have to be theologians, they have to be teachers, and they have to be apologists. And as we continue through our text, we see yet again how important this was for Titus because let's, let's again, as Paul works through, look at the dangers of the culture and why it so matters. The reason these giftings matter so much is because the culture, really no matter what culture you're in, is interested in the church. Right? You might not be interested in false teachers, but false teachers are interested in you. The culture is interested, Satan at work in the world, he is interested in disrupting and overturning local churches. So pastors are called to be defenders, so to speak. Look again back in verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So specifically here in Crete, there are insubordinate, there are people who reject Christian authority. They want to be their own authorities. They're empty talkers, so their theology doesn't really change you. It doesn't really have any help for you, right? We see all throughout the pastoral epistles this theme that Christian theology has a transformation effect. The theology of these false teachings, there's, 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 it's, it's pointless, empty talk. It's just words. He says that they're deceivers, and, and notice this concept of deception, right? This is a moral indictment, right? These aren't just simply people who are misinformed. These are people who are intentionally deceiving. And he says this again in verse 11, that they must be silent since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. These are the kind of teachers, and this is, a, this is something that if you're a pastor or if you have any desire to be a pastor or really a, an educator of any kind, I would call you to examine your motives. Do you teach because it gives something to you, to you? Or do you teach because you are genuinely interested in the people you're teaching? See, Paul, he cares about his people. He cares about God's flock. And so he wants them to have the truth. And that's why teaching is so important to them. But these false teachers, they're not really interested in what their teaching is providing you. They're interested in what their teaching and authority platform is doing for them. But again, these are intentional deceivers who are doing this for their own selfish motives. And then he does this amazing thing. This is so Paul to me. In verse 12, to prove his point, he says, listen, I'm not just being harsh on the poor Cretans, okay? Even one of their own, one of the most influential Cretans that's ever lived, was saying this about this place long before I did. So what Paul does here in verse 12 is he quotes a well-known phrase from a, a hymn that existed many years before Christ called a hymn to Zeus. And it was written by a man, I, I, I never remember if, I, if I'm pronouncing it right, but Epimenides. And Epimenides was a Christian, or forgive me, not a Christian. He was a philosopher, a religious teacher, and a poet. And he was a native of Crete. He's from Crete. And he ended up becoming very famous and very well-known and producing literature. And at some point in time in that literature, he made sure to sort of rip his own 
hometown and remind people the place that I come from is filled with what? Well, verse 12. They are always, the Cretans who are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, just as a side note, it's kind of interesting that we have a Cretan saying Cretans are always liars. So are you lying? If you're not, then they're not always liars. But the point is, is Paul is simply saying, listen, I'm not just some fanatic. I didn't just get my feelings hurt and now I'm overreacting. Everybody knows what Crete is. Even their own people know how wicked this society is. He uses that phrase, a prophet of their own, and he, um, in the secular world, they did refer to their philosophers as prophets from time to time. So Paul may have just been giving a very academic title, but I lean to think that this was more ironic. I think what Paul is doing is Paul realizes that from a Christian perspective, we don't live in a world where you've got religious people and then non-religious people where you've got people with kind of a religious bias and then these neutral observers, but, but every single person, whether they realize it or not, is a highly religious person. And even if you go to like a non-religious, if you were to study, for example, atheists in our communities, you will find atheists have pastors and evangelists and prophets. They just don't use that terminology, but they play the same functional role that, they, that we do in our religion. I used to always give my professors when I was getting my undergrad a hard time and said, professors are basically secular apologists and secular evangelists. They, they perform the same role that any Christian evangelist does. So Paul is recognizing, he's calling them a prophet, so to speak, to say, listen, the Cretans and, and, and the Greco-Roman world sort of has its own culture, its own religion, and this man, these prophets, these poets, and these philosophers essentially serve as the bishops of the secular age. These are the prophets of the secular age. These are the people that are giving instruction and counsel and other people are learning and being taught from them. And Paul says, so even their own pastor, so to speak, their own prophet, so to speak, their own bishop, so to speak, has this to say about them. This was a truly wicked culture, but there was obviously a, a heavily influenced Jewish community as we saw in verse 10 and 11 and as we saw in verse 13 and 14. And, and to understand this last little bit, this, this, this part becomes important um, because he says in verse 14, not to devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And he says this kind of bizarre thing in verse 15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving there is nothing pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And here's what Paul's talking about. What most likely Paul really has in mind here is he talks in verse 14 about Jewish myths and the commands of people is what was heavily known to be practiced among the competing religions of Christianity are what we call today ascetic practices. And all that means is that these were sort of ceremonial rituals that religious people did and it was sort of seen that this is what makes me holy this is how I purify myself, and this is how I show you how holy I am. We see this in First and Second Timothy. We see this in the book of Colossians. And, and some of the things that these ascetic practices required, basically, if you th want to think of real aesthetic practices, just kind of think of a stereotypical monk. Monks were very ascetic, right? They, 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 they lived on their own, and they would fast all the time, and they would abstain from marriage. And there's even a history uh, and period of time, I think during the medieval age, but I can't remember exactly, but there was even a time where they would be known to physically hurt themselves. They would walk through the streets with whips and they would whip their backs. 
And these ascetic practices brought up, and it, what it did is it sort of saw these, these, these things of the earth as being nothing but fleshly, um, impure temptations, and to, to, to purify myself, to make myself holy, and to show you how holy I am, to show you how disciplined I am, I discipline myself where I wake up earlier than you, and I'm not eating for 24 hours, and you're filling your face. And you find that woman attractive, and you run off, and you get married and follow your passions, but I am abstaining from marriage. And there's whole certain foods that I refuse to eat, right? You see, they built up this religious austere because they were able to discipline and avoid all of these things. And in so doing, they thought they were purifying themselves. And Paul calls these Jewish myths, and he calls these the commandments of men. God did not call you to abstain from any kind of food. God did not call you to abstain from marriage. These are, these are made-up religious traditions. These are the commandments of men. And so Paul here really flips their system upside down. He says in verse 15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving nothing is pure. What Paul is reiterating is a principle that Jesus taught in the New Testament after he began to describe the fulfillment of some of these Jewish ascetic practices. So the Bible for a period of time did give the Jews some ascetic practices. There were some foods that they were to abstain from. But then Jesus declared all those foods clean. He said there was a purpose to that. It's fulfilled and you can now eat those foods. And Jesus in so doing, you can see this especially in the book of Mark, he says, and here's why, these were, this was a symbolic gesture to point to a spiritual reality which I have now filled. And then Jesus gets them to think about this. And he says, he says essentially this, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. It's what's in your heart that defiles you. So Jesus reminds us that these impure foods, it's not as if you eat these foods and now suddenly you're a defiled person. No, if you are pure, if you are saved, if you're regenerate, these foods are clean to you. If you're pure, if you're saved, you're regenerate, marriage is clean to you. If you're a pure person, it makes all these things pure. And he says on the flip side, if you're an impure person, these rituals are not only not purifying you, but you're actually corrupting them. To the impure, all things are impure. They are defiled. I, I just watched a video the other day of um, a blogger that I really like named Tim Challies, and he went to Rome. So he was looking at a lot of the Roman Catholic, uh, you know, art and places. And there's actually, I forget its name, but there's actually a staircase. This famous staircase, what is it? Saint, that's right, St. Peter's Basilica. And it's just a staircase that doesn't lead to anywhere. And you are supposed to walk up that staircase slowly. Many people will do it on their knees. They'll get on their knees and they'll walk on their knees up this staircase. And they believe that if they make it to the top, they receive an indulgence, which then helps purify them and forgive them of their sins. It's this ascetic practice. And we see this in other religions, pilgrimages. Right? You will see there are still places. I remember uh, there was this famous pilgrimage that I used to see when I was living in Colorado, in northern Colorado, where people would walk for miles in bare feet. And they would walk to some special shrine miles and miles away. They wouldn't eat, they wouldn't sleep, and they would walk 24, sometimes 48 hours on their bare feet to make it to some shrine. And that discipline, that action was somehow, you know, purifying them and making them holy and God forgiving them. And Paul says quite the opposite. That religious behavior is not purifying you. Rather, you're defiling that religious behavior. It's not making you clean, you're making it dirty. 
We see this in Romans chapter 8 when Paul says that it is impossible for those outside of Christ to please God. Everything we do is defiled. Because if our hearts are impure, then the reason we're doing this is impure. So if you're outside of Christ, everything you do is sinful. You can abstain from marriage and wake up as early as you want and live like a monk. You can be as disciplined and holy as you think you are outside of your Christ. Everything you do, God is displeased with. And then we see in the New Testament, on the flip side, as we come to Christ, we now have a whole new perspective of the world and we see all these glorious things God has given for us to enjoy. We purify these things in Christ or we defile them outside of Christ. But Paul is reminding this people, don't think that your religious ceremonial walking through the motions is purifying your conscience. Even in the Old Testament, when they have these kind of ceremonial rituals, God tells us over and over again throughout the Old Testament, when their hearts were not right, when their hearts were far from God, God says things like, I hate your sacrifices. Your sacrifices are a burden to me. The very sacrificial rituals that he commanded, he said, when you are disobedient and far from me, I hate those things. So the Old Testament sacrifices were not purifying God's people. Rather, defiled people were actually defiling those sacrifices. It works the other way around. And this is what was so beautiful about Jesus' ministry in the Old Testament. If someone was a leper or sick, in order to be clean, you had to you know, distance yourself from them. And you couldn't touch them. If you did touch them, you'd have to go through a washing ritual. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he treats the lepers and the sick very different. He touches them almost every chance he gets. Because Jesus shows us in the new covenant now, we have a different way. Rather than the lepers making him unclean, Jesus made them clean. And that's the power of our New Testament faith. That's the power of the trustworthy word as taught. Is that if you want to be pure, you need to come to Christ. No ritual will purify you. Rather, outside of Christ, you will make everything impure. And that's why he concludes in verse 16, these people, they profess to know God. They claim to be worshiping the same God. They claim to be worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But their false religion and their wicked ways prove that they do not know him. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. You can say you know God all you want, but are you proving it? Can you demonstrate it? Paul says these people are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Which is a stark contrast to what we saw in 2 Timothy where he said the scriptures, union with Christ, makes you sufficiently capable for every good work. If you want to do good works, if you want to be a pious person, if you want to be a religious person, come to Christ and learn his word. It is union with Christ and the word of God that makes you fit for every good work. But these people teach contrary to the word of God and they don't know Christ. And so because of that, they are unfit for any good work. Everything they do is defiled. And so that is why it is so important that pastors be able to help their people understand truth from error, righteousness from sinfulness. And so if I were to summarize our three points, if I were to summarize this whole text, I would do it by stealing a quote from a theologian and a pastor greater than myself, a man named John Calvin, who made an incredible commentary on this, very simple, and he, he said something to the extent of this, the pastor is called to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves. The pastor needs to have two voices. He needs to have a voice for gathering and edifying the sheep and a voice to drive off thieves and wolves. That really is the thesis. The pastor needs to gather sheep, edify sheep, and drive away wolves. 
He is to tender and nurture his flock. He is to defend and protect his flock. That is what we learn from this text. And let me just give you as we close just two really important concluding thoughts and I'll make them very brief. Number one, compare the Apostle Paul's approach to Epimenides. They both agreed in their sort of uh, perspective on Crete. Crete is, this place is terrible. These people are wicked. So how does Epimenides respond to that? He gets out of Dodge, he gets famous, and he writes poems about him. How does Paul respond to that? He goes on a mission trip to them. He plants churches there. And, and he even says in the text that pastors need to be able to refute this so that these people might be what? Sound in the faith. You see, Paul did not see the wickedness of this culture as a reason to abandon ship. He saw the wickedness of this culture as a lighthouse that says we need to go there. We need healthy churches there. We need godly pastors there. Paul, even in this, I mean, this was a very harsh critique, and Paul used very harsh language. He name-called. He was very harsh, but don't lose sight of the overall context. While Paul was name-calling, he was reminding them that we need churches, we need more churches, we need godly men, and we need to change these people. Paul was not abandoning Crete. He was not abandoning the Cretans. Paul saw a people that there was still hope for redemption and change. And so one of the first things I say in conclusion, let's, let's just not forget, no matter how bad our community might get, no matter how bad our country might spiral out of Christian orthodoxy, it is never beyond redemption. And it is never time to stop working and stop fighting for the gospel in our community. Paul saw the people of Crete as being a redeemable people. So how much more should we see the whole community of Roswell as a redeemable community? Never abandon a culture because of its wickedness. Rather, plant churches in a culture because of its wickedness. And I just say, secondarily, let's be praying for the future of our church in regards to our elders. We, we never want to lose the importance of, of having multiple elders, of having godly elders and faithful elders. And so our church needs to be praying about raising up a generation of elders, raising up men to help lead our church so that we can continue to be a witness in this community just like the churches in Crete were a witness to their community.